Hey, you're not going to bed yet, are you? That's right. It's time for TV Good, Sleep Bad. TV is awesome! Daniel Lackey and Elwood Jones. Hello, you have reached episode seven of TV Good Sleep Bad, the podcast that trolls through the old listings magazines to find weird stuff that broadcast in the middle of the night in 1987 and that nobody's heard of since. Um, I am uh, your faithful host, Daniel Lackey, and as always, I am joined by the Mulder to my Scully, the Dr. Forrester to my TV's Frank, uh, Elwood Jones of, um, from the depths of DVD hell. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. Why, why am I Scully? Uh... Can't I just be like Crycheck, the, you know, the do-gooder who's planning to, like, take down everyone eventually in his masterful endgame? Yeah, well, he died. <laughs> it was Skinner going to the end, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's the, I, yes, he's in the final episode, but you know, Skinner, Skinner, Skinner killed him. I figured you wouldn't want that. I figured you'd want to be one of the ones that lived. I don't know. If you're going to be taken out by anyone, it's got, if, at least it's Skinner. Because Mitch Pileggi, he's a cool guy. He is. And he's a surprisingly effective neo-Nazi, if you've ever watched Sons of Anarchy. Uh, and he's also re- plays um, a, a serial killer called the Road Warrior on Criminal Minds. Oh, where basically he's like driving around in like a four a four by four with a shotgun that he converts to sit on like the uh, window. So well. you can like you can cock it on the windsill. It's so cool. If you ever get a chance, definitely. Uh, I think we may have to look at that episode in future. But yeah, the criminal minds. Uh, I believe it's called the Road Warrior. But yeah, he's there in like leather jacket and that. He's just like again an absolute badass because I didn't realize this until recently, but. Everything that Mitch Pileggi does outside of Exiles, where he's obviously, you know, suited and booted and that, he apparently plays a lot of psychos. Yeah. Well, the first thing I think most people uh, remember him remembered him from was uh, Shocker, the uh, Wes Craven movie from 1987, where he played a uh, uh, the eventual uh, uh, serial killer who'd been executed by the electric chair and came back as a ghost that could shock people. Yeah, or or something like that. I, I guess I, it it uh, I, this is 1987 we're talking about, so my memories are a little fuzzy. I still remember the wonderful VHS cover of Shocker. Oh God, yes. Where he's sitting there in that you know, he's got that manic grin <laughs> on his face, and he's wearing the you know the orange jumpsuit. Yeah, so, yeah. I believe it's, it's Shout Factory, or maybe Arrow releasing who have just recently re-released it. And you have the choice of the new cover, which is basically. Uh, should we say shocker with a knife or you can get the reversible cover and it's the classic vhs cover and i was like i know exactly which one's going on my shelf exactly uh, i don't even know why they'd bother releasing the other one <laughs> <laughs> because they paid someone to do it so they might as well use it we've paid somebody to come up with some piece of blandness we might as well yeah. use it and stick it on something um yeah. Anyway, on this episode, we will be covering uh, two, 
weird things that were broadcast apparently in 1979, 1978 or 1979. First, we're going to have uh, the classic Doctor Who serial, City of Death, and... Um, then we are going to have the Japanese Spider-Man, the, a, a Spider-Man series uh, produced by the Toei Company uh, and featuring a guy in a Spider-Man suit. And I believe we're covering the pilot episode, which uh, Wikipedia informs me is named The Time of Revenge Has Come Beat Down Iron Cross Group. This is, again, this is some confusion over, obviously, with this Japanese Spider-Man, because it is marked as episode zero, which mm-hmm. normal people would assume to be the pilot episode. But having done some research going into this, um, it turns out this episode falls between episode 10 and 11. Needless to say, this one is absolutely bonkers and probably one of the most fun ones we've we've done so far. So I'm really looking forward to discussing this one with you. All right. Well, I, I think I'll probably have some interesting things to say about it. <laughs> I won't know until it's actually time to talk about it. But first, uh, what you've been watching lately? What's been on the um, – what has your license fee been paying what for? What has my license fee been paying for you? Um, well, I... <laughs> <laughs> well, first off, um, since we're talking to the BBC, we just recently started uh, showing the new O.J. Simpson uh, drama series. Oh yeah, um, yeah. People versus OJ, the American Crime Story. That's right. Uh, which stars uh, David Schwimmer as um, Robert Kardashian. Yep. Um, we've got Selma, Selma Blair, Selma, Selma Blair, um, playing uh, Chris Kardashian as well. And this, and it seems to be there's this real mix of sort of stars who have fallen slightly from grace, shall we say. Um, yeah. It's sort of that they've not really had a film out in a while. They've they're not exactly struggling for money, but at the same time, they've probably been drawn in with, you know, things like The Following or 24, you know, classy TV productions. They thought, right. well, TV's, you know, the place to be right now. You know, it's doing good work for Kevin Bacon and these 80s guys. So, you know, we'll sign up to this, you know, this 13-part drama. And I saw the first episode, and it is drag. It is I... I actually have been... I've been enjoying it, actually. I, this is... I think you're one of the rare people who are actually enjoying this one because everyone I've uh, spoken to so far has not been very well received but again this is going off episode one I've got episode two still to watch as I've kind of dedicated myself to sitting for the whole thing now but yeah it's uh, the first episode we've obviously got the so the opening opening to the case um, and it ends with obviously OJ Simpson going on the run in his white bronco and uh-huh. it's basically just introducing introducing all these uh, these characters and players and that and I'm not sure where this one's uh, going to go where this one's going to surprise us and it's going to build up slowly like uh, Netflix making of a murderer where yeah. again that started off with a couple of dodgy episodes at the start and it then turned into this gripping must-see series yeah I'm not sure whether it's going to do this one or whether it's just going to be like you know like a time life drama under a different rapper right um, but I mean, you said you've been enjoying this one. Yeah, we're, uh, I think we're three episodes. I think episode four okay. airs tonight. Episode three or episode four airs here tonight. Um, and I'm going to catch up with it tomorrow, but yeah, I've been enjoying it. Um, I, I think a lot of, I, I think over here, I think people really expect it to be a complete train wreck. Um, yeah. I know it's been getting really, it's been getting really good reviews on this side of the pond. Um, it's from 
now the, the it, there has been some confusion here because there is also a show over here called American Crime. Um, so they're really kind of um, pushing the People versus O.J. Simpson angle. This is going to be this is from. American Crime Story, it's from Brad Falchuk and Ryan Murphy, uh, who are also the co-creators of Nip Talk Glee and uh, Final Girls and, you know, American Horror Story. And it's on the same uh, network over here as American Horror Story. Um, But Ryan Murphy has not been involved in the writing of any of these episodes. He's just been directing. Um, I think, so I think a lot of people expected this sort of complete, complete train wreck yeah um also because some of the bizarre i mean a lot of the cast some of the casting really really makes sense like uh, i i think sarah paulson is a strong choice for marcia clark uh same thing with courtney b vance for johnny cochran and then it will come and throw these um kind of casting curveballs you've already mentioned one david schwimmer as uh as robert kardashian and i i think you did neglect the weirdest one which is john travolta as a robert shapiro yes john travolta the man who looks like he's melting Uh, (laughs) and he has he has the weirdest eyebrows and i'm looking at it and all i can think of the whole time he's on the screen is that joke from friends where joey waxes his eyebrows and chandler goes it's like a baby caterpillar chasing his mummy Yeah, and we haven't even gotten to the uh, debut of um, Nathan Lane as F. Lee Bailey. Uh, although my, my recollection is is that Robert Shapiro in real life had eyebrows that looked like that. Okay. They do do, I think they're, they are fairly faithful to the eyebrows. Obviously we got here, we've also got Cuba Gooding Jr., um, a man yeah. who's been on the decline since he got his Oscar. Well, yeah, as, and- as happens after you get an Oscar. And um, his portrayal of O.J. Simpson, I want to use the word manic, as he seems to be panicking in this like constant panic every time he's on the screen. And it's not like as his character's panicking. He just seems to be like generally panicking as though he's been put in front of a camera and told, yeah, be O.J. Simpson without any sort of script or guidance. Uh-huh. He just sort of, bit, the whole of the pilot episode, he just seems to be flailing around and really seeming very awkward to watch on the screen. Uh-huh. But again, I didn't know this one was associated with Ryan Murphy and Brad uh, Frouchek. Yeah. Um, for myself, they've not done anything good since Nip Tuck. And Ryan Murphy, I think it's safe to say, is probably one of the biggest hacks going. And I think Lindsay Street of a French show Sunday set point highlighted it best when she said that he's just the sort of guy that's very good at selling his pictures. Yeah. I, I watched the first three, I think, seasons of American Horror Story, and I checked out after the Coven season. Uh, because even I, I was able to take, I was able to, to, to deal with a lot of the ridiculousness that, that came along with Murder House and Asylum, um, but really Coven just broke me. I just, I, 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 as much as I like Lily Rabe, and as 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 much as she did what she could, as well as she could with the character, when you you have a, a situation where you have a literal witch basing herself off of Stevie Nicks, that is. You haven't just jumped the shark. You've 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 careened the shark into outer space and have jumped over that. <laughs> yeah, American Horror Story. It's one of those series like yourself. I watched season one. I watched the whole of it. Season two, I got to the halfway point and got bored. Uh, season three, I skipped over. And again with season four, I got to the halfway point and thought, this is just stupid. Uh, yeah. And as I think we've discussed before, 
the problem with American Horror Story is that it's a 12-part series. They go into it knowing they've got 12 episodes, yet they only seem to have enough material for six. Yeah. Um, so we get a lot of stupid filler and stories being very overstretched. They just need to give them six, do a strong season with six. It's They're overstretching themselves trying to keep doing these 12 because they just don't have the writing power to do 12. They don't. And the material isn't going to stretch as far as they would like to think it does. And unfortunately, every season they, they pitch it so well that they get those big numbers in and obviously it guarantees them another series. And I think we just end up in this constant vicious circle um, with the, as far as the series is concerned. I know there are people who do like the show. Um, I'm unfortunately not one of them. I've yet to yeah. get any of it. Each season just comes with its own set of flaws and it just takes me out of it. I just, uh, I find it, it's, Gratuitous at times for just gratuitous sake. Um, yeah. Yes, we're telling a horror story, but that doesn't mean that you have to throw splatter and sex and gore and violence at me just because you're saying it in the horror framework. You know, you've got to have context, you've got to have believability and story to sell these things. Right. You've got um, to be able to. You've really got to be able to care. It's it, it's the, it's the number one thing with horror, no matter what. You've got to be able to care about the characters. Yeah. And I mean, the one benefit of of this is that. For the most part, Ryan Murphy is able to get a cast. Uh, a lot of the time, I've noticed most of the seasons have written on the casts. You know that there are maybe about half a dozen people in the cast um, that will basically give everything they've got, and will that will generally make up for everybody else in the cast who's half-assing it. Yeah. You know, Jessica Lang. Jessica Lang, at the very least, covers for a lot of um, covers for a, a lot of the flaws in the first couple seasons, just for, through sheer, I'm just going to Jessica Lang the shit out of this. Yeah. I know what you mean, and I think if they weren't constantly recycling the cast, right. they may also be able to get into it more, but again, it's just the same actors brought back again, and oh, we're just changing who's playing what and that, but it's uh, yeah, it's not really holding my my sort of interest. The again, the other show that which is struggling to hold my interest with, but I'm now at that point where I've come too far to give up on would yeah. be The Walking Dead, which we've just returned as of last week. Right. Um, we're on season six now, I believe. I that sounds right. Okay. It it debuted. I I, I did. I have never followed The Walking Dead. Okay. I I know it debuted over here. It debuted, I believe, the same like around the same set of weekends as the first American Horror Story and Game of Thrones. Yeah. It was like all... It was like all compressed into like one set of weekends in late October 2010. Obviously with this, the problem with the show is now that it's descended into this state and I think it suffers mainly because the zombie genre is so saturated that I myself am bored of zombies Mm -hmm. and when we're just going through this rinse, lava, repeat cycle with every episode where... We have to find an objective. We encounter zombies. We kill zombies. We just repeat the cycle again. Right. And obviously, we had the start of the the, the second half of season six. We have the huge battle for Alexander, where it's just the, our survivors taking on this huge horde of zombies. And obviously, there's they made this big deal about there's going to be characters die. For myself, these characters who did die, I'm not going to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it yet. They were insignificant. These weren't right. major characters. And it's one of the shows I'm trying to watch as it's shown because I'm trying to contribute 
more with obviously I'm re enjoying Rachel Farrow's coverage of The Walking Dead over at Channel Superhero. And I've been trying to be more involved. I'm hoping that if I get more involved with the social side of, of the series, that I might, you know, get my sort of uh, lust of this show back. But at the moment, it's seriously waning. And I think within the first opening 15 minutes, which was essentially just them picking up where we had the teaser where we met, had three of our survivors uh, meet Nugent's sort of foot troopers. Right. And they had this very tense standoff. And basically, they're forced to hand over their weapons. And the lead guys there is like, if you're going to eat a shit sandwich, don't nibble, just bite down and chew hard, you know, just chow down. And you have this incredible standoff. And then we obviously just go into this just prolonged zombie standoff. Right. And for myself now, because I'm just so bored of zombies and the show has just become like this cycle of, oh, let's just throw splatter and just kill zombies. It's like it's like a teenage boy fantasy you're watching. Yeah. Like this this survivalist fantasy of, oh, we get to like have this legal, idea of legalized murder because, you know, you can kill zombies. No one minds if you kill zombies. Right. And it's, it's just boring to watch. And the most interesting parts of the show now is when the zombies aren't on the screen. But I know, obviously, Rachel, who's uh, covering it over at Channel Supro, she still seems to have a real lustre, and there are people who do like, like it, but I see the show really just spiraling off more. As it, it just seems to be constantly pushing the violence quota to try and keep find new ways to shock its audience, to keep that interest there. Uh, we just had the character Carl get shot in the eye, right. um, who's now survived. And again, they're tying bits and pieces in with the comic book, but it, again, it's still going off on its own track. So you can enjoy the comic book and the series on its own. But I think once we get towards this lead up to Nugent, uh, who I believe is going to be coming at the end of the season, I think it's really going to prove the point. If I'm going off the reports I've read where the cast are reporting to being second by the finale, whether it's going to either break a lot of viewers or it's going to just take it off in a whole new darker direction. But um, at the moment, the show certainly has no end in sight. Uh, right. Supernatural is currently what season ten, season eleven, season ten or season eleven. So if that's way up there, I can s- still see uh, Walking Dead going on as long as people are still tuning in a bit longer. But yeah, and, and, and certainly you know the viewership doesn't seem to be trailing off. No, uh, the ratings don't seem to be. It, it seems to be you know the people who uh, you know people the people I know who have been are, are into the Walking Dead. They seem to be. You know, some of them love it. Some of them have your reaction that it's kind of just become a, a long, hard slog that they don't, you know, even when Nugent, um, Nugent is his name, right? The next big bad yeah, coming Nugent's, down the pike. Um, Nugent's the big, big baddie of uh, this this season. Although he's yet to be revealed, we all right. know who's going to be playing him. And... Right. He's kind of, right. He's like basically one of like the big bosses from the comics, like, uh, like the governor, basically. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 I don't follow the comic book, but I, I, I do know people who do follow the comic book. And I, I, I just, you know, I, I heard about some stuff that Nugent pulled in the comic book uh, that, that people were wondering, like, oh, my God, I, I, how are they even pull this off when they get to it? But, yeah, it's the, it looks like the fan base. It looks like or the fan. I shouldn't say fan base. It looks like the viewership is pretty much in it for the long haul. Mm. You know, they may have they may love it. They may have complaints. Uh, Game of Thrones is really in the same boat. I've. Uh, I, I'm starting to wonder if Game of Thrones jumped uh, the shark with the Red Wedding, but I'm, at the very least, I'm still with it to, to see where it goes from here. Yeah, Game, Game of Thrones is still doing interesting things for me. And I think because we've got that many different 
threads happening at the moment within Game yeah. of Thrones. And there's, there's something, in, and that's what I love about Game of Thrones, is that if you're bored with one set of characters, it's okay because you we're going to only be with those characters a little bit, and then we're going to go off and see the, what these other guys are up to. Yeah. If, um, if, I, if I get sick of Cersei spinning the wheel of paranoia, you know, or trying to figure out who she blames for Joffrey's death this episode, you know, then, then at least I know in a couple of scenes we'll get to something interesting like Arya or, uh, you know, um, Varys and, and Tyrion, so... Yeah, exactly, so... I think Game of Thrones... Well, Game of Thrones is due to end in two seasons, I believe, or... Uh, three seasons. I, I believe that we're coming up on season six. So... It's going to debut over here in April, and I think now the current plan... I don't think this is official in terms of that there have been contract signs and agreements made. I believe they want to end it with season eight be good i mean it's going to leave such a void and the problem with with uh, game of thrones is they advertise it six months in advance it's the only show to get advertised six months in advance over here and they make such a big deal of it and it comes and it seems to be over before you know it you you're like into it it's like game of thrones time yes let's you know i've got my monday night sorted and then the season ends and, 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 like, and then and two, two months later what happened you know that's <laughs> two months ago yeah cause it's only like 10 episodes mm. But it's 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 still got me myself gripped. Um, I mean, more comic book stuff. Um, I've still totally with Gotham. I know there's people, the naysayers out there who don't like it, but myself, Gotham still remains one of the strongest comic book properties out there. I love the fact it's got a very Sin City esque vibe to it, and I know there's people who are obviously bitching that you know what's the point because by the time Batman arrives on the scene, nothing has changed. But the way I view it is that Jim Gordon's this like one good cop in the old city and he's trying to make a difference and that's what the story's about it's about this man trying to make a difference and forming the allies he can to try and right. do this while we obviously see criminals such as penguin um we see young Catwoman, we see the riddler who's just starting out we see these interesting characters sort of coming up and i think it's the season two what we've had so far because we're behind you guys in the states mm-hmm. has been really enjoyable this season obviously has been titled rise of the villains right so there's been much more focus on this sort of like gangland battle for power with obviously penguin now being one of the major crime bosses uh, we've also seen some of the minor villains such as firefly making appearances here who right. had a gender swap as well uh-huh. um, and was there uh, play so he was now a young girl turns into firefly but so far it's building up nicely and i'm really enjoying the um who they've got to play um alfred uh, oh sean pertwee yes who's actually said recently in, over here in the press that he's happy to stay with the series until they do and to bruce dons the uh the, ca- the cape and cowl uh-huh he's happy to stay with the series until then he's re- really happy with how it's going and it'd be great if they can continue it that long and yeah just... i it's it, it's one of those where Gotham over here is I, I it's getting a lot of half and half. There are a lot of people who think it's yeah. just ridiculous and a lot of people who think it's great. But the the fan base, the the, the viewership really the, the people that are tuning in from week to week really seem dedicated to it. They they really seem like you and pretty much all of my friends who watch it week to week. You're all really enthusiastic about what it's what it's doing and, and the direction it's going. And I mean I haven't watched it yet, but just looking at the ads, I'm seeing some fascinating stuff. It really looks like it's uh, 
Um, I don't know how familiar you are with the comics, but uh, it's really, I think, it looks like they're really trying to go for that kind of classic, uh, if not necessarily year one, but like, you know, the long Halloween uh, type vibe. Oh, it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely a much more adult property than the other DC properties that we've got out there. Things like Supergirl, Flash, um, Uh and Arrow. Which right. Is sort of their own thing, and then you've got Gotham, which is, as I said, it's a much darker, a more adult property, and I'm really glad that that's the direction they chose to take it because it it just benefits completely from it. Uh huh. And it's not like you're watching a comic book property. Yes, you have the fantastical villains and that, but for the most part, you have all this real great sort of like gangland ten- uh, tension and that, and the fact that you've got this idea of just Jim Gordon, he's like the good cop. Right, um, and the fact that he'll occasionally get an ally, but they'll get wiped out in some way, such as the head of the uh, Gotham PD uh, was recently taken out in one of the earlier episodes in the season. Uh-huh. What in Michael Chiklis? <laughs> oh God, the irony! And Michael Chiklis, as we know from the Shield, and he's brought the Shield intensity with him. Oh yeah, I, I, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, is this is this to commission Michael Chiklis or is this the Shield? Okay, it's the Shield, Michael yeah. Chiklis. He's like come in and he's like he's going he's formed his task force and he's gonna clean up Gotham. Oh boy, he's like coming just like a proper ass kicker. Um, but yeah, it's freaking roll. <laughs> but uh, Ben McKenzie, um, an actor certainly worth watching. From really, from when he left the OC, he did um, a great show uh, called Southlands. So again, another police procedural show. Right. Um, if you've not seen Southlands, definitely check it out. It's a very gritty cop cop drama, kind of uh, reminiscent of the days of NYPD Blue. Right. Um, and it follows him really as he enters as a rookie, and he goes up to being a fully fledged officer, and it's sort of uh, set in the LA Southlands and. Again, it's really good. It's one of those shows that got cancelled way too soon, um, even though it did have an ending of sorts. Um, and it's one of those few shows I would like to see brought back. So uh, it's, it's it's one of those where, if I remember correctly, it had a season on broadcast over here, mm. a season or two, and uh, it didn't get the ratings, but it had the ded- a dedicated enough viewership that I think it made the transition to one of the uh, cable uh, networks over here for, like, I... I, I uh, for for a while, uh, well, they produced it much like they did with uh, Courtney Cox's uh, Cougar Town. Yeah, where it, it it didn't get the rating, it didn't get good enough ratings, and then they migrated, I think, to TBS or TNT, one of those over here, and and let it ride out a few more seasons. Yeah, and um, other than that, it's just as I've been watching Supergirl, a surprisingly good show. It's daft fun, um, and certainly, Old Ali Mobile herself, Clarissa Flockhart, is doing. A fantastic job as a Supergirl's boss. Supergirl, uh, I know, has surprised a lot of people. I know a lot of people initially that were turned off by the the previews and the trailers. And uh, when it actually debuted, when when they actually started running the episodes, um, the people who actually you know pushed past that and actually watched the show actually were f- generally find themselves very pleased with it. Yeah, it's been it's been certainly been enjoyable. We're still waiting for the second half of season one over here, and the show which I'm now playing catch up with as well is Arrow, which uh, I've just started on season one. I'm about seven episodes in. Uh huh. I start tried to watch it when it was first released and couldn't get into it, but now it's sort of been really shown within that sort of early afternoon block where I've got nothing on, so it's currently filling that spot. But it's been enjoyable. I'm enjoying it more the second time round. Again, it, it's 
it's disposable fun. I can't say I'm one of these diehard fans, but I'm enjoying where it's going so far. Cool. So uh, it'd be interesting to obviously see see how it progresses over the season. I know that people said that the later seasons are in a bit of a grey period, but what long-running show doesn't? Right, right. Um, uh, the only other thing, obviously, the last thing for myself, and I think it's pretty much an important show for yourself, and that would be the return of the X-Files. Yeah. Obviously, here in the UK, we got it four weeks after everyone else. Uh-huh. Um, so, luckily for me, I've been on planes and been playing catch-up. So, I've yet... The only episode I haven't seen is the final one, which shared states but yesterday. It, it, it aired... Today's Tuesday. It aired... Uh, yeah, it aired last night. Um, so, and I've heard that it ends on a cliffhanger, so I'm... It does. Not sure, but uh, what's your thoughts on the... Re- on the? I don't want to say the reboot... The, it, the mini it, season, or what? How should we call this? Um, I I have just been calling it season ten, the revival. Okay. Um, I, it, it's one of those things where it has been very uneven, and I think even anyone, I think even the staunchest X Files fans will admit that this has been a, a very uneven season. When it's hit the highs, it, it's been really uh, very. I mean, if, if nothing else. Even if, you know, the other five episodes were all crap, I yeah. think that this would have been worth producing just to get another Darren Morgan episode. Um, and even if uh, Mulder and Scully meet the Weir Monster isn't quite as brilliant as Jose Chung or the Copperfages, Clyde Bruckman, it's still, it's, it's, it's because those episodes are all basically bloody genius. <laughs> um and it, it, it's just amazing. And I was really into uh, Founder's Mutation as well, the second episode from, from this one contributed by Jim Wong. Oh, really? Um, yeah, I really liked that one. That was the one, That was uh, the season we've obviously had. Founder's Mutation was the episode I just... It didn't uh, really... I just couldn't get into it. And I think it's mainly because it was supposed to be shown as episode four. Right. So the fact we have... I'm just going to warn ahead. We're going to just there will be spoilers ahead. Um, the fact that we have so much dwelling on baby William in that episode that I found it, it was like, really, we'll be supposed to be, we're going into this, we're only two episodes in. And then obviously I found out it's supposed to be in episode four, but it got reshuffled around. So it kind of made a little more sense, but I enjoyed the pilot and then had a sticky moment episode two, but more than Scotty meet the weird monster was a lot of fun. It um, was. And then home again, Gave us some incredibly fun violence, and um, yeah, it did. Essentially, um, did home again, but with a trash man. Yeah, um, I, 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 I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed uh, a home again as well. But for me, really, I'm not going to say I. I'm not going to say I disliked my struggle. The first my struggle, I think. But this was always my feeling about the original show. I, I tend to feel that Chris Carter's episodes have been the weaker ones. Yeah. Babylon, really, in particular, has a. I remember saying to someone after Babylon aired, it's like, if you want an offbeat X-Files episode, you know, you, you go to Darren Morgan, you go to Vince Gilligan, they can do offbeat, they can do quirky. Chris Carter really can't. That he did was able to pull off a couple of the quirkier episodes uh, in the original show, like uh, The Triangle or... Uh, postmodern Prometheus, but this one really reminded me of uh, Syzygy, um, where it was just all this clashing tone, and you you really didn't get much of a sense that he knew where he was going with it. Uh, I just felt that the two 
plots kind of clashed with each other. Um, I, it had some brilliant stuff. My, um, you may have noticed my uh, cover picture right now on uh, Facebook is a screenshot of Mulder with the two big uh, brass knuckles that say <laughs> mushroom. But it, it's just it, it it's just weird, and it's just the tonal shift in it is just so weird. Okay, I mean Babylon, I again. There's aspects of it I enjoyed. I really like the new agents that they bring in, uh, Agent Einstein and Agent Miller. I know a lot of people are like, oh, it's just young Mulder and Scully. They're trying to, you know, replace Mulder and Scully and bring these new agents, and I don't think that's the case. Obviously, I'm very excited to see the return of Lauren Ambrose, being a big Six Feet Under fan. Right. And she was great fun as Agent Einstein. The fact that she criticizes Scully for essentially losing her way and no longer being the woman of science that she was at the start. I think uh-huh. it's genius. Um, and the fact that she gives Mulder a placebo, and he thinks he's tripping balls. Yeah. Um, in one of the scenes which I think has become one of the most popular ones, I think that and Mulder in a red fong from Mulder and Scully meet the weir monster. <laughs> yeah, the red the red speedo. That was... <laughs> which is, they seem to be keep... These two things keep popping up, but yeah. obviously when we have that... that uh, that magic mushroom scene in um, in Babylon. It was really a lot of fan service there, the fact we get to see Skinner, who hasn't been featured enough in this season for my no, taste. No, no, we have not had enough Mitch Pelegi in this season. No, he's made it onto the opening screen, which is great. Uh-huh. And I can understand probably why they haven't included him, because it's trying to find where to put him in. But for my money, I, w- I would like to see more Skinner in a season 11. Uh-huh. I think Mitch Pelleggi is a key element to the X-Files formula. He, he um, is, and I, I always really liked the episodes that focused on him. Yes. I, I liked Avatar. I really liked Zero Sum. Or really liked the, the ones, the, 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 the Skinner versus Crycheck episodes. Uh, I think another one was the Pine Bluff variant. Those were always highlight episodes, I thought. I always, when it kind of, when the show kind of moved away from Mulder and Scully a little bit and, and focused on Skinner, I I always found him a fascinating character. Oh, he was unquestionably a fascinating character, especially for the most part. You could never tell where he fitted in with the conspiracy plotline, especially. Was he part of uh, like Cigarette Smoking Man and Well Manicured Man? Was he like part of that that's conspiracy, or was he actually on Mulder and Scully's side? And I think right. those early seasons where you weren't sure where he, where he stood, um, he's he was again, he's just been a fascinating character throughout, and I feel that for them to lose him, if they did see, when we come to season 11, would be a very big mistake for the season. Right. Um, I would like for them to definitely feature, feature him more, and I think a lot of people would, again, this is something that has been slightly irritated me slightly with the season where people were saying, oh, we want all these these different things. But between this season and the last film, we've now got the series essentially to the place where we can start taking it more interesting directions because we needed, um, I want to believe, to bring them out of the wilderness and you know clear them with the FBI. And then right. we need this season to bring them back into the fold so they can start investigating cases. Yeah, um, and now we're at this great point where we can essentially go in many interesting directions. We can have like a little spin-off show and follow Einstein and Miller, and right. have them go off and do things. And uh, it, one thing that um, Robert Zerby and I have been t- discussing—Robert um, uh, Zerby, of course, of uh, French Toast Sunday and uh, 
uh, escape hatch, yep. uh, talking about the, the possibility of ultimately this morphing into, uh, you know, the X Files: The Next Generation, focusing on, you know, focusing on say Miller and Einstein, and then kind of not not necessarily relegating them to the background, but then taking Mulder and Scully. And, and using them as recurring characters. I even said at one point I could definitely see Mulder almost serving the same purpose as the lone gunman. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say wacky, but the quirky informant on the side with the far-out theories, you were never quite sure whether you needed to, whether what he had to say you should take seriously yeah. or not. I feel, I feel that if we're going to do that, I, want it, I don't want it to be under the X-Force banner. I want it to have its own sub-banner. Yeah, it's like Millennium Lone Gunman that it's his own property. I right. feel that if we sell, say, "Oh, we're doing this is X Files," but it, wait a minute, it's not well done, Scott. It's these guys. There's going to be some very big backlash because the fan base, being as they are, Mulder Scully are the X Files. Yeah, I have nothing wrong with if we do crossover, so we can obviously bring these characters over to whatever we call the Miller and Einstein show. Yeah, um, but I don't feel that. See, we should like go season eleven. It's Einstein and Miller now. We tried right. it with season nine. Season eight, nine, yeah. Season nine, basically with Doggett and Reyes. Yeah, and you know, it it felt awkward. I mean, what we're we watching, you know, this isn't isn't the case. We can perhaps get away with it slightly where it's Scully and Doggett. Right. But when we're just replacing Scully as well, it's like, what are we watching now? Um, so yeah. I really hope that they don't go in that direction. Um, but no, um, we'll just go to meet the weird ones. So I think was just, was a delightful highlight just for the reverse werewolf. Oh yeah. To it, the fact we have the ref, we have the uh, weird ones addressing as uh, Kochek, the Night Stalker, as we discussed in the previous episode, uh, which was a nice little thing. We also yeah. have the gravestones. Um, you the reference to Kim Manners. That's right. Um, as well as the the second gravestone, which is again. Um, whose name I can't remember. So yeah, I can't remember. But it's um, again, it's another reference to um, another member of the crew who obviously uh-huh. worked on the show. Um, I apologise to any X Files fans that we're not was he recommended. This is not my attempt to disrespect anyone, um, but it certainly was an, an equally important reference, even though it's perhaps a little more out of shame than Kim uh, Kim Manners' much deserved gravestone. And it was nice yeah. to get a little nod there as well. Um, really, really nice to see the return of the druggies from, uh, the stoners, from <laughs> Quagmire and, uh, War of the Copperphages. Uh, Tyler Labine, I don't remember the actress's name. Um, really, really, I thought, amazing performance by Reese Darby, um, as the, the, the <laughs> monster. And, uh, I, I, I have to wonder, I have to wonder if, if, if that was a sly reference. He was, uh, last year he was in, um, uh... He started uh, "What We Do in the Shadows," which was uh, from Jermaine Clement of the um, of Flight of the Concords, yeah. uh, the, the the vampire mockumentary where Reese Darby played a, a werewolf. And uh, I always wondered if it was a reference to that character. But <laughs> yeah, no, it was really I loved that episode. Yeah, the the show which showed it for me is when you've got the lizard person here, our weird monster, and he's just lying on his back, minding his own business, chewing on a piece of straw. I was like, this is brilliant. It is. I was like, no matter what we do now, I just seldom... The fact that getting had that vibe of you being told someone's perspective, the same as in Bad Blood. Right. You obviously have Mulder and Scully's perspectives on the same story. Uh-huh. And the little details change, like the fact that we see uh, him wreck his phone shop. 
Um, and in his mind, he has sex with uh, with Agent Scully. Ever since I started becoming human, I've felt an intense need to lie about my sex life. <laughs> and I love the fact he manages to become manager of the phone shop within the first day of working there. <laughs> it's like they don't know any more about it than we do. <laughs> I, I, this, I just thought it was brilliant. Brilliant this, satire. This rectangular shape. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, Reese Darby's... Oh, he's been he's been fantastic. Everything he appears on, be it Modern yeah. Family or or this, and uh, obviously he's got going to be heading up the 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 follow up to uh, what we yeah, did Shadows of the, the Wolves. Wolves. Yeah, which uh, that I'm really looking forward to that because uh, I just loved I uh, you know, a friend of mine we watched that together and I we're still using we're what are we werewolves not swear wolves <laughs> as a running joke between us. Nice. I like to uh, often say, <laughs> I'm doing my dark bidding when I'm brooding on the computer. It's like, what are you bidding on? Oh, this lamp. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, anything else you want to discuss about X-Files? Or um, what have you been I, watching, really? I, uh, well, obviously the X-Files. Uh, yeah. And my, my TV season uh, has pretty much started. Uh, as I said earlier, I've been following the, the People vs. O.J. Simpson. Um, Better Call Saul started last week. So that's uh, had a pretty good uh, opening episode of that. Um, going to see where that goes. Um, but uh, it, it's just I, um, I'm really, really happy with that, with uh, the first season of that show. And uh, hopefully it's going to keep its strength up. And just trying to get in a couple of things, trying to fit in a few things before the big crunch comes. Because uh, two more of my shows are going to be starting in mid-March, Bates Motel and The Americans. Okay, um, and then Game of Thrones starting in April. Yeah. Um. So I've been I've been getting in uh, the odd I, I I got in uh, making a murderer. Um. So I, I I crashed all of that in. I've been doing the odd episode of Jessica Jones. Um. Which uh, I like, but is not really. It, it, I like it, and I'm not going to say that it's not holding my attention, but it's not pushing me to like watch episode after episode after episode yeah i don't have the urge to like binge watch it um and also um getting in uh the occasional episode of this old i don't know uh how well known it is over on your side of the pond but an old uh yorkshire television spy series from the late 70s called the sandbaggers i i can't say it's one that's that i remember i mean we're if we're talking about the sort of classic series over here for those sorts of things, where it's more sort of like Man from Uncle and the Avengers, which have got the real sort of cool appeal. I'd not to say that it hasn't got oh. its fans over here, so. Yeah, The Sandbaggers, which was uh, done three series back in the late 70s, I think, on Yorkshire television. And it's basically, um, it's a spy series, but it, it, it's very much not in the vein of like, um, it's really more like Lakar, like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Not a whole okay. lot of action. Mostly people sitting around in offices um, with political double dealings. It's fascinating stuff. And uh, then the other thing that I've been getting into is I finally uh, decided to cross a resolution off my list. Uh, a New Year's resolution from several years ago. And I'm finally starting to watch Veronica Mars. Yes, I saw that uh, saw that you've been, been commenting on Veronica Mars. Uh-huh. I know that you've... You've got mixed opinions, am I right in saying, for Veronica Mars? Um, the first couple episodes, I'm not going to say that they left me cold, but this is um, 
there are things I like about it and things that I'm not so hot on. And I, my suspicion is, is that I, by about, ep- about five episodes in, I'll either learn to live with the things that I'm not so hot on, um, or it'll just start, you know, and it'll just click for me or it won't. Um, it's like I said, it's, I like the stories. I like certain things about it. I, I, I like the idea of doing like, you know, I'm a big fan of the movie Brick. Yeah. So I really like the idea of kind of like doing this sort of, uh, high school noir, um, I think there are some. I, I like several of the cast members. Uh, uh, Colin um, Enrico Colin Dozy or something. The guy who plays uh, her father. I've I've been a big fan of since. Uh, actually, I think going all the way back to just shoot me. Um, there are a couple stylistic choices here and there that kind of annoy me. Like uh, Kristen Bell's constant narration um, really kind of irritates me. I'm not a big, but then again, I'm not a fan of uh, constant voiceover narration in like a TV show, if it's a little bit at the beginning or an end, like on the files, that's one thing, but that's actually the thing that why I cannot get into Oz is just Harold (laughs) Perrineau showing up every like 15 minutes between the act breaks and, and narrating. And in particular there, just in such a kind of like a non, I guess almost in a Brechtian non diegetic way. I find that a little bit irritating. I, I mean, but we're going to see. I'm only like two episodes in. Um, and I think the things I like about Veronica Mars uh, are keeping me interested at this point. Okay. Um, so, but we'll see where it goes. Yeah. I mean, if you, just speaking of Veronica Mars, um, over on our Matt's Facebook page, uh, which you'll find TV Good Sleep Bad, um, we did, I did recently post the. First, first short film, uh, Jess Archer versus the X, which is kind of like Veronica Mars meets Spot, Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Right. Um, now this is a series that's started off as a, a short film and is now being developed into a web series. Right. Um, and our friend of the show, the Vern of the Vern's Video Vortex and As You Watch podcast, um, he sat down and he did a, a whole interview with uh, director Amy Taylor and the leading lady, Emily Williams, mm-hmm. uh, which you can obviously find uh, on our Facebook page there, or if you just go to um, asyouwatch.webpass.com, you can find it there as well. But it's a fascinating uh, little show, and I, I'm not sure whether you're going to obviously like it if you don't, if you are struggling to get with uh, Veronica Mars at the moment, especially because it's got that constant narration, which I personally really like in a show. Uh-huh. Um, and the reason I like the director's cut of Blade Runner so much because it has that narration. Yeah. Um, but obviously, if that's something kind of great to you, I'm not sure if this show would actually sit on you. But um, certainly, it somehow works. Imagine they've you've got these two very clear influences, Scott Pilgrim and Veronica Mars, and somehow they managed to combine the two, and it it really just works. And it kind of feels like the show that's going to fill that void left by the likes of Todd the Book of Pure Evil and Spaced. Yeah, it's that kind of surrealness to it, but uh, certainly worth checking out if only for the short film, uh, which is available on YouTube. Yeah, um, now Vern has been talking about that for a while. I know he's been a big fan. He's been—I'd seen him talk about it on Twitter for I don't know how long. So, but yeah, I, I guess when I say that it's not—I—I I, I don't want to say that Veronica Mars hasn't really—it hasn't like completely 100% hooked me where I've got like, oh, I got to watch Veronica Mars all the time yeah. now. But it's like I'm interested. I, I think it's good. There's a couple of things that I'm not so hot on, and like I said, uh, most likely by about episodes five or six, that'll just kind of go to the wayside, and I'll, you know, just kind of accept it for what it is and continue on with it. 
But I, I, I'm, I'm doing a writing project that I'm kind of sort of explaining at this point as being the X-Files meets Veronica Mars. Um, so <laughs> I'm uh, a- actually trying to figure out what that means. <laughs> Fair enough. So, um, Yeah, so, I mean, is there anything else? Because at the I, moment it seems that there was nothing to watch like a couple of months and now everything's come back at once. Yeah, like I said, that's the way it almost always is for me. Um, it's just that, like I said, a lot of, like I've said in the past, a lot of shows that I follow, um, just tend to debut in that kind of late winter, early spring time frame, and pretty much leaving my entire summer open, and with only a couple things here and there to watch in the fall, like Fargo, uh, which won't even be airing this year, most likely. Yeah. Um, and, uh. It's just there's been a gigantic glut, and it's occasionally been a struggle to keep up with everything. It's, uh, I mean, I've still got to watch Fargo Season 2. Um, at the moment, I'm struggling to... Although a lot of publishers, for some reason, Amazon Prime especially, have decided they're going to start casting them off. So Parks and Recreation, I've been kind of powering my way through to try and get through as many of those before they remove it as possible. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, that's, again, a show I've never really got a TV showing over here, so it's had to find its audience on streaming services over here in the UK, same as Community. Right. Um, but I'm, I've really been really enjoying uh, Parks and Rec. I think it's, uh, it's a really great really great show, and nice and light, and you can binge watch it without uh, feeling you're watching the same thing over and over. So Yeah, it, Parks and Rec is, is one I never particularly cared for. It. It's got, I think, a very... I'm not going to say it's a bad show. I, I understand certainly why people like it, um, I think it's probably got a, a particular uh, aesthetic to it, kind of a particular vibe to it. Uh, that's not really, it never, it, it ran for about five seasons over here, but it never uh, really it kind of rode along the coattails of, of more popular shows, I think. And I think largely kind of coasted on that and a couple of things like, you know, Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman. Um, yeah. It, 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 like I said, I understand why people like it, and, and certainly there has been a very, very devoted following, but somewhat limited. It never really found a mass audience over here. Um, and uh, this is a sh- I, I don't think it would have lasted quite so long, maybe 10 years ago. It, it's one of those shows that I think really has benefited um, kind of from the, the, the new way of doing things now, where you know, your, your initial first night ratings aren't the most important things in the world. Yeah, it's um, it, it it's like everything. I sometimes wish that the streaming services would run things perhaps a little longer than they do, uh-huh. um, or perhaps advertise more the fact that they have them. Yeah, and, uh, it would certainly help to prioritize things if you knew things were coming off a date rather than them suddenly disappearing on you when you're partway for a season. And I think this is why I put off like sending the Marvel properties over at Netflix. I think when I eventually get around to renew my subscription, that. I'm going to have to binge watch the whole of the Marvel set, especially with season two of Daredevil coming up. Right. Um, and I've been hearing some very good things, but I think that's something, certainly something for a future show where we need to sit down and like, just look at the, the whole of the Marvel property on Netflix. Cause yeah. it's been a fascinating uh, development process. And certainly when you look at the garbage that is Marvel agents of shield, it seems to have somehow managed to avoid the pitfalls that those uh 
few TV projects that they've tried outside of Netflix and certainly fallen prey to, same as Agent Carter. So Yeah, a- Agent Carter has not been... A- Agent Carter is another one of those shows where it has a very small fan base that's very, very devoted to it. And everything I've seen of Agent Carter, I- I've adored. Um, I But I just really like Haley Atwell, admittedly. <laughs> um, uh, but it- it's just one of those things where it, it-, it just it has not... It just has not found a wide mass audience. It, it has not got the, for whatever reason, it's it's just not finding the ratings that Agents of Shield got. Yeah, it's. Uh, I I still don't understand the appeal of Agents of Shield, but as you said, it, there's people out there who like it, and uh, I'm unfortunately not one of them. Yeah. But um, of course, if you are a fan of either Agent Carter or Agents of into the shield and uh, definitely make sure that you are checking out channelsuperhero.com we also have DJ Valentine um, uh, who is uh, currently doing live tweets uh, for many of the shows as well so uh, make sure you check out the the Twitter feed for uh, Channel Superhero uh, which I believe is at ch underscore superhero um, or alternately just type in Channel Superhero into the search bar and it will come straight up for you um, yeah it's uh, Anything else, or if we... I think we're ready for our feature discussion. Cool. Um, so what are we going to kick off with then today, Mr. Lackey? I believe we're going to kick off with Doctor Who. Um, we're going to start off with City of Death. Uh, City of Death, which is um, probably one of the highest regarded uh, Doctor Who serials. Um, one of the really famous ones. Um, in many ways, because of its... Uh, it's one of those where it was it was um the writing credit is a pseudonym uh david agnew uh but what everybody knows is that um it was really written by douglas adams um yeah certainly that was what um when you pitched it to myself on last week's episode you'd be like oh it's douglas adams and i was like oh great douglas adams hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy and of course episode loads up and it says written by david agnew i was like have i got the wrong episode here or what but uh, yeah, it's just a pseudonym they used. Uh, yeah, um, it's it's the departmental pseudonym. What had happened was that uh, they had uh, Douglas Adams had taken over. This is season seventeen. Douglas Adams had taken over uh, as script editor um, under producer Graham Williams, and uh, uh, Douglas Adams had commissioned uh, David Fisher, who'd done two stories for the previous season, the Key to Time season. Um, uh, to do two stories for season 17, um, one of which was The Creature from the Pit, and the other one, which was, I think, called A Gamble in Time, and would have taken place. They'd, they'd gotten, they through a quirk of accounting, they'd actually worked out that it would be cheaper to take a bare-bones film crew and film the second unit work in Paris than to do stuff, I guess, at the Ealing studio. So they... Uh, they went and, and, and basically wanted to do a, a, uh, a story set in Paris, and they wanted to do it as a, a historical that was going to be set in the 1920s, and it was going to be a, a, a bulldog Drummond pastiche. And uh, what they ended up figuring out was that they actually had more money to do the Paris location filming than they initially counted on, um, and therefore... With doing so much there in in Paris, they weren't going. They had enough. They had so much money 
to spend in Paris that they couldn't disguise it as a historical. They couldn't make it look like the 20s, that they, the, the amount of money, but they couldn't spend more to actually make it look like the 20s. So they had to rewrite the story to set it in the modern day. David Fisher ha- basically ended up not being available. So Douglas Adams and Graham Williams basically locked themselves in a, 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 a Graham Williams apartment for basically like a three-day coffee bender. Uh, basically rewriting it into City of Death. Um, And because of goofy, um, because of BBC regulations, I don't think this is the case anymore, but at the time, um, there was, like, uh, the writers were, the the contracts they had with writers and producers, the, the BBC was very very leery about the ideas of like a script editor commissioning himself to write a story uh, a script for his own show or a producer commissioning himself to write a a script um because the idea being i guess is that it would be considered to be you know somewhat um i I guess unethical so because graham williams had been had something to do with the writing of the of the story it had to go out under the departmental pseudonym of david agnew they'd actually used it two years earlier with uh the season 15 finale invasion of time as well um so uh like i said this is season 17 uh this is a broadcast in 1979 and as the doctor tells romana at the beginning of the episode this is uh obviously the fourth doctor tom baker um, with the second Romana, Lala Ward, uh, that 1979 is kind of a table wine year, um, uh, kind of like a, a damning with faint praise. Uh, this is not one of the more highly regarded seasons of the show. Um, the, uh, the Doctor Who had come off uh, really, I think, what a lot of people think is one of the strongest periods, the, the so-called gothic horror years, the first three... Uh, the first two, two and a half, uh, or, or three seasons of Tom Baker's run, and it had gone in a little bit more of a... Since then, there had been a lot of criticism of the, the violence and the gore, such as it was, such as you could get anything resembling gore in a, a, a series made on Doctor Who budget. Um, <laughs> uh, and that this was particularly when it was getting the most... This is really one of the periods of time when Mary Whitehouse... Uh, was really campaigning against it. Um, so, uh, starting with Tom Baker's fourth season, it started to go in somewhat of a more overtly uh, lighter direction, uh, not quite so violent, not quite so dark. Um, and uh, a lot of another thing that kind of was happening at this point was that Britain was going through a massive series of inflation crises, and Doctor Who was continually finding its, its budget slashed year by year. Um, and, and season 17 is really amongst, uh, fandom kind of considered to be the nadir of, 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 of this, this era where this is the, uh, many of the worst regarded Tom Baker serials are in this season, Creature from the Pit, uh, Nightmare of Eden, um, Horns of Nymon and, and such. This is really the only serial that a lot of people really like out of this batch. And it is kind of, um, ironic that, uh, not only is this one the highest regarded one, it's actually considered it. Usually when people talk about the best Tom Baker stories, this is usually very high on the list. Um, 
so it starts off in Paris in 1979 where, you know, the doctor has taken Romana uh, basically just to visit Paris and visit the Louvre to see the Mona Lisa. And he runs, um, he runs afoul of um, uh, Count Scarlione, Carlo Scarlione, played by the wonderful, wonderful British character actor Julian Glover, um, who is, <laughs> don't know what his signature role is. On your side of the pond over here, we mainly know him as the baddie from uh, um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. That was that would be where I most place him. I mean, you can obviously uh, he obviously did a number of things. I mean, he was on Blake Seven, yeah, uh, as well. He's on UFO. So it's I think we should try and obviously place um, place him. I think yeah, I would say Last Crusade would be the best. His most memorable role. Yeah, um, um, and right now he actually is a regular on Game of Thrones. He plays um, Grand Meister Pycelle. I would not have recognized him under all that that gigantic wig and all that ma- aging makeup. But yeah, um, Count Scarlione is secretly a tentacle-faced, one-eyed uh, alien uh, known as Scaroth, lost at last of the Jagaroth. And millions and millions of years ago, before life evolved on Earth, he uh, and the last of his race, which largely destroyed itself during a, a series of wars, um, were trapped on a uh, were uh, ostensibly destroyed when their spaceship, uh, trying to lift off from primeval Earth, uh, blew up. Uh, he was the only survivor. He fractured into seven quote unquote cells, which were distributed at various points through time. So the most uh, recent one, uh, Count Scarlione, has this um, weird plot that is part Pink Panther caper and part bizarro science fiction, where he is trying to build a, a time machine to, to basically he wants to go back in time and keep himself from accidentally blowing up his spaceship and saving his race. Um this requires vast amounts of funds. So yeah. he's come up with a particularly wonderful, wonderful scheme, which is that one of his uh, past selves during the Renaissance is um, forcing Leonardo da Vinci to paint seven copies of the Mona Lisa. I, yeah, <laughs> I, I just want to say that this this episode was rather unique, especially for a Doctor episode. In, and I'm right in saying that this is a rarity, that when we go have a Doctor episode, we stay in the one time period. In this particular episode, we do several jaunts through time and space to uh, to stop um, Julian Gover's character, because we obviously go back to the Renaissance um, and where the Doctor obviously plans to meet Da Vinci, only to find himself running afoul of one of the other versions of uh, Scarlione. Yeah, and it just threw me off. It was like, wait a minute, we don't normally travel through time in this. We're normally in one time zone, and that's it. Yeah. So uh, it was kind of a kind of a bit of a throw to obviously get to see more than one time period for this one. Um, um, I have to say that the actual face of Scarf, um, our monster of the of this particular episode, scared the bejesus out of me as a child. Oh, I can see why. It, um, I it definitely I I remember I must have first seen this when I was about I think eleven and even then 
at, at that age being old enough to be able to tell that the you know when I, I first watched the Terminator at this around this age and yeah. I was able to tell that some of the, the the bit where Arnold Schwarzenegger takes his face off I could definitely tell that was model work. Um, it is it, it definitely looks kind of silly today. But yeah, it is incredibly the the scar at the Jaggeroth design with all the facial tentacles and uh, yeah. just basically basically it's just a mass of spaghetti dyed green with a big eye in it. Yeah, I understand. It's obviously aged a bit. I mean, this is back in what seventy uh, nine. We said that this, yeah. this was released. So yes, it does obviously age, but at the same time, there's a charm to practical effects and. Especially with these these classic Doctor Who episodes, you kind of look past in many ways some of the more questionable effects that we see featured throughout the series. And this one in particular, it's got it's got a charm. Yes, perhaps it's not the same scary thing that I saw remember seeing as a child, but it's still an, it's still a cool looking villain. Uh huh. Um, so I kind of like that. I don't. The thing which probably bothered me more is that why we have Romana looking like she's escaped from Centurions. <laughs> there is a story about why they had her dressed like that that I cannot remember. There <laughs> is, the writers were perverts. They, they had... Yeah, it was... Um, it, it had something to do... I think somebody was trying to... I think it was they were, they were trying to actually deliberately piss Roma, uh, Lala Ward off. <laughs> um, oh, okay. I'm looking at the uh, Wikipedia article here, and it was actually Lala Ward's idea. Oh, huh. well, there you go. Oh, because she was supposed to wear a silver cat suit. <laughs> oh, yes, that's that, that, that's not too much of a leap, is it? That's not even remotely. Yeah. Well, this was only her second. This was only the second serial for this particular incarnation, if I remember correctly. This is the second serial. And she would have just been, she would have regenerated from the Mary Tam version in the previous serial. So they're still kind of trying to to come up with what her particular take on Romana is. Yeah. Eventually, I think, settling on the kind of pink version, kind of like the pink girly uh, equivalent of, of Tom Baker's uh, with, the, with the long pink coat and the scarf, where she basically looked like the, like the Hello Kitty counterpart. Okay. Uh, I guess of the, the 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 coat and the scarf. Yeah, I for myself um, as well. Tom Baker, one of my all-time favorite doctors. Uh huh. Well, obviously, we've over the years we've had what we're up to now twelve doctors. Are we? Or we are on the technically we're on the thirteenth. So we apparently should, if we're following the rules, shouldn't be able to regenerate past thirteen. Well, there's a whole thing that they covered. They actually they covered it when. Um, oh, they have covered this. Yeah, now. they have covered it because. Uh, uh, do you mind if I spoil that? No, feel free. Um, okay. This is the problem because I've never been able to get into the new seasons. I'm a classic Doctor Who yeah. series guy. I tried to go on the new series and it just ticked me off, so I don't bother uh, with it. Basically, what happened was is that in the late, like the final Mass Smith season, they did they did two things for. The the fiftieth anniversary show and uh, episode and the twenty thirteen uh, Christmas episode where Matt Smith regenerated into Peter Capaldi. Matt Smith was supposed to be the eleventh Doctor, but what we found out in the fiftieth anniversary episode was that there was a Doctor between Paul McGann and Christopher Eccleston that we never saw. 
Ah. Um, uh, played by John Hurt. Oh, is that the War Doctor? The War Doctor. Right. So, the, so technically speaking, it's not Christopher Eccleston who's the Ninth Doctor. It's um, the John Hurt's War Doctor, but the other doc- the War Doctor himself doesn't really consider himself to be the Doctor, and neither does anybody. Neither do the other Doctors. So, you know, it, it's. Um, Chris Freckleson considers himself the ninth doctor, David Tennant the tenth doctor, and so forth. Um, and then uh, a thing that happened uh, towards the end of David Tennant's run, where David Tennant um, ended up in one of the more bonker thing, bonkers things that happened during Russell T. Davies' tenure, uh, David Tennant forced some regeneration, some regeneration energy into an old severed hand of his, basically growing a new doctor out of it that wasn't entirely Time Lord. Um, and uh, that was retconned in, the, in the, the, tw- the 2013 Christmas special. Stephen Moffat retconned that so that that counted as a regeneration. So instead of Matt Smith being the 11th Doctor, Matt Smith was actually the 13th and final Doctor. So um, Stephen Moffat then uh, basically had the Time Lords give the Doctor... Um, a new regenerative cycle um, at the end of that to um, basically to help him defeat the Daleks. Okay. So so Peter Capaldi is really like the first of a new regenerative cycle, even though we all have the sort of social contract we call him the Twelfth Doctor. He's really the Fourteenth. Okay. I'm just going to I'm just going to like say I'm nodding now, and that yeah, we probably should like have had like a whiteboard or something to note all this down because. But uh, yeah, that sounds like a very confusing way of, of getting around it. So yeah. uh, um, go them. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, for yourself, who's your favorite of the Doctors? Let's let's start there. Tom Baker. Tom Baker. I, I don't. I don't. To me, I, 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 this is. I know this is very unfair to many of the other actors who have played the role. To me, Tom Baker is the Doctor. John Pertwee is a Doctor. Patrick Troughton. Colin Baker, Paul McGinn, Christopher Eccleston, great actors, all of them. They all play a doctor. Yeah. Tom Baker is the doctor to me. I he's the, he's the definitive article. He's my first doctor. He's the first Doctor Who story I ever saw. I I want to say was Tom Baker's first robot. Um, I caught it running on our PBS station. They used to run Doctor Who at uh, eleven o'clock at night. On Sunday nights, it was like, a, you know, and I, I just happened to be staying up late one summer and it was on. Yeah. And, you know, my neighbor's kids were fans of the show. They uh, so I said, let's, let's see what this is about. And it, it really hooked me. It, it hooked me from right there. I must have been probably about uh, 10 years old at the time because it ran late. And because I was I didn't really know a whole lot about it uh, because it ran at like 11 at night. I, I did not realize it was actually considered to be a children's show in Britain. Um, I, I remember that really freaking the hell out of oh, me. I wouldn't say it was considered a children's show because this was shown about seven o'clock, um, seven eight o'clock at night. So it was sort of like a prime time show, but kids used to watch it. Yeah. Um, I would say the new series is definitely more of a kids show, and I mean I grew up in in the eighties, so my doctor was Sylvester McCoy. Right. That was the doctor I first came to the show with, and those episodes were scary as hell. I used to remember watching Greatest Show in the Galaxy, uh, which had freaky robots and had yeah. werewolves and all this weird stuff. And for the longest time, I mean, 
my doctor really was uh, Sylvester McCoy and the assistant was Ace. Yeah. Um, and then obviously as when they just had BBC two started re-showing old episodes, they always skipped over William Hartnell's. I've only now just recently started seeing William Hartnell episodes. Thanks to the horror channel. Yeah. Um, there, there are so few that so many of them were wiped and the trout ones as well. Um, I mean, so Patrick Chorton was really my sort of starting doctor. Uh-huh. Um, and, some of those episodes that I liked, I mean, I again, each of the actors have brought their own thing to the Doctor, and that's why I've always liked. Um, John Pertwee, another solid favourite of mine. Tom Baker, as you said. Yeah. He is the Doctor. He plays it with the way only Tom Baker can play the Doctor. This idea that the Doctor is, like, regenerates, so he comes out, and he is obviously confused as to where he is. So we had that scene where he's dressed in barbarian underwear. Yeah. But during his first regeneration, and he's offering villains jelly babies, and the fact he has long scarves, all these, like, yeah. odd things. Whereas you would see later Doctors, uh, things like Peter Davison's Fifth Doctor, um, where he's, like, wearing the cricket jumper and stuff, and they're trying to capture that quirky essence of it, but they can never really capture it. And I think Sylvester McCoy would be the closest we would come again to seeing that quirkiness that Tom Baker obviously represents it. They they really went during Colin Baker's tenure, they really, really went overboard on, on trying to do that, particularly with this just basically that eyesore of a costume. <laughs> You know, and I mean, it's it's the 80s, but, you, you know, every it just really it really just tilts all of any of your design choices for for any any story. Yeah. Anything you design, it has to compete with whatever the fuck that is. that's on top Colin Baker, <laughs> you know. And, yeah. And then obviously from from there, I mean, Colin Baker, I mean, I've enjoyed Colin Baker more since he stopped playing the doctor. Such so as when we had the free the free doctors special, right? Where it's basically Colin Baker playing himself, and the fact that he's now this egotist whose glory days were playing the Doctor, and uh-huh. he's determined to hang on to those no matter what. <laughs> so he gets excited over the fact they re-released his episode with more special features, even more means... of me, and the fact <laughs> that he's there standing on his ride on mower because he's determined that they're going to phone him back and he's going to come back and do the Doctor again. Uh huh. So I've enjoyed I've enjoyed the fact that he's. He's more laid back now. About, yeah. Oh, he's not so up to his when he was playing the Doctor. And I think it was in those difficult years when he was, I mean, he was 84 through to 86. Um, and when McCoy took it over in 87 through to 89. Again, these are darker stories. Right. Um, and it was really at its, the height of its real horror sort of period. Right. Uh, with those those sort of final years before they axed it. And... Yeah, there's, there's particularly, I, I remember... Uh... I think some of my favorite, actually, some of my favorite Doctor Who stories are in that final season, um, like uh, the Curse of Fenric and uh, um, Ghostlight, where they are very gothic. Yeah. And I mean, even I mean, they generally talk about the horror content of the first few Tom Baker seasons, but those can even when they're a little bit on the quirkier side, uh, the, uh, the Curse of Fenric is very horrific. Oh, it's uh, it's, it's underwater vampires, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. World War Two and yeah, World War Two and vampires, Soviets, Nazis, <laughs> and vampires, and the Enigma machine. You know, it's just it's really just dark all around. Yeah, definitely, and it gave us essentially the last good Dalek story, really, where you had the the big Dalek conflict. 
the oh, Emperor yeah. Dalek. And let's obviously back to to this particular episode. Um, I don't I don't know where I, where I really sort of stand on this one. It was there was aspects of it I liked, and then there was parts where it just seemed to be getting random when we start jumping through time um, and doing the multiple selves selves and that. But at the same time, I think because it's Tom Baker as the Doctor. We have that element of mischievousness, such as when he's writing on the uh, the copies of the Mona Lisa. This is a fake. <laughs> yeah, writing on the canvases. Uh, that's I love that bit. Um, um, that that's almost a classic Douglas Adams bit. Yeah, and again with these old series, we're not relying on the sonic screwdriver to solve right. all our problems. It's it's wits and and guile and intelligence that he's using to solve issues. I mean, yes, he uses the sonic screwdriver. In one scene here, I believe. Yeah, one, um, one scene. And it that I'm fine with. I'm fine with it to be this this tool he can pull out, and, the same as K9. What I find very interesting about this episode is this also establishes, and this is something I only noticed with this watch of, of, of the episodes, it also introduces the fact that Romana also has a sonic screwdriver. But it's done just so casually that I, I I've gone I you know I've gone the last thirty years without noticing that it's introduced in this story because in t- t- today they would put an enti- they would make an entire episode about the companion having a sconic screwdriver they would call yeah. so much attention to it you know here it's just kind of you know just kind of offhand and I think just on the fact that the point you just made say it makes me also brings to mind the fact that they've constantly said that they're going to regenerate do- the Doctor as a lady. Uh-huh. Now, would you be happy to see a time lady? I mean, I would personally be happy. I know there's probably some fanboys who think they're screwing it up, but I mean, you can trace this back to the 80s when they were trying to get this idea off the ground, so... Yeah, I... To, to be honest, I don't see any reason... They've, they've, they've On the show, they have gone... They they have made quite a point of, of of establishing that time lords can switch genders after regeneration, even to the point in the the most recent couple seasons, the the master is actually now a woman. And I I am completely on board. I am completely on board with the idea of a female. I I have my own ideas about. I wouldn't mind seeing like Haley Atwell playing the Doctor. I think you could. I could think you could do a lot with with a with a female Doctor. I would really. I, I think it's inevitable that they're going to go in that direction at some point. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, all, I'm all for it. I don't see, you know, I, even if the uh, canon hadn't, you know, made such a point, the recent canon hadn't made such a point of establishing that it is possible, I, I certainly see no reason why it, it shouldn't be done. I, I don't consider the, that sort of thing sacrosanct. I would, uh, uh, there's, there's a, the thing that I've always liked about Doctor Who is that it has this almost limitless sense of possibility with it when at its best this idea that you know you can go anywhere with it or do anything and i i certainly don't think that should i certainly don't think gender should be a limiting factor i think the only other thing i've got in my notes here is the scene where we obviously have um scarf kills his scientist using his time travel device so that he ages into a skeleton uh-huh. Um I thought that was that was pretty cool. Yeah, that was uh interestingly enough, uh the actor who played Kerensky, that was uh David Graham. His if I recall correctly, that's his only on screen appearance on the show. He was one of the main Dalek voices 
during the late 60s and throughout the 70s. Um, they would usually bring him in to do Dalek voices. Um, yeah, because um, he was also, I mean, he was one of uh, Jerry Anson's regular voice actors. Yes. Uh, um, I, I think actually most of the, uh, most of the regular um, Dalek voices, like Roy Skelton and uh, uh, Peter Hawkins, uh, I, I think they both did a lot of Jerry Anderson. Because, um, yeah, certainly with, with uh, Grandma, when he did Gordon, Tracy, Brains, Parker, and Carano. Uh-huh. Carano, in particular, he seems to be tapping into for, for this performance. Right. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I thought, it again, if it's, probably a lot of the effects in this episode are going to come off a little cheesy to a more jaded modern audience. But as a fan of the classic series, there's a certain charm in looking past the cheesiness of the effects and just losing yourself in in a fun story it, i think and i think that's the main thing it, it doctor who i mean yeah it, it it seems to have gone out of its way to try to scare from time to time but it was if if, if you're bugged by the bad by 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 dodgy effects you're not watching the right show yeah. you know it's it's not something that should really concern you it's I, I again it's kind of like it's it's in many ways it's the same sort of vibe i get from watching old b movies you know that's part of the charm of it you know, is uh, the, these these rubber masks, and I mean, realism aside, whether or not it's convincing aside, I love the design. You know, it's it's just such an endearing piece of design. Yeah, I have to also say that first script that was obviously written by Douglas Adams, it is certainly lacking his usual sense of humor. It's got it. It's got some, I think really classic Douglas Adams moments. He ended up actually uh, recycling part of the plot for uh, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, actually. There are some real, I, I think, one of the classic, uh, a couple of real classic uh, uh, Douglas Adams lines here, like uh, when he, he first, when uh, Herman, the um, the count, the Count's uh, kind of bodyguard and uh, enforcer and all-around thug uh, kind of brings him into the, the sitting room of Carleone's castle, he he says, "My, what a wonderful butler! He's so violent." <laughs> yeah, there's. I think Tom Baker has some great lines in in that one. Certainly, he's got some good uh, witticisms there. But I don't know. I think mainly being obviously a, an Adams fan for things like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy uh, saga and things like that, I have a very sort of distinct idea of what I consider to be a, a Douglas Adams piece. Uh huh. Um, and that's probably what caused me to be a little. I don't know. Um, a little dismayed that it wasn't wasn't the uh, the same sort of witticism that he would obviously bring to his Hitchhiker's Guide that they did. And I mean, obviously within Hitchhiker's Guide again, he did time travel. Yeah. Because uh, after Dent and and Fort Prefect, they go back in time to uh, prehistoric times. He gives his own spin on how the Earth came to be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Basically, we're descendants of people that another planet didn't want. <laughs> <laughs> the human race is over there making a documentary about itself. Oh, God. The uh, and that's actually, I think, the thing that I, I had... This, I think, was the thing that really <coughs> got me into Doctor Who was, now that I think about now that I remember, I had gotten into Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy right before getting into Doctor Who, and part of the thing that I remember about Douglas Adams, Douglas Adams was script editor for Doctor Who, and I think I just decided I was going to watch Doctor Who until I came to his episodes. Yeah. You know, um... It's just I I, I I don't know. I definitely see the Doug, Douglas Adams uh, aesthetic here. It's perhaps not as pronounced as it is in his other produced ep, uh, st- serial, The Pirate Planet. The Pirate Planet really is very Douglas Adams. 
but I, I think it's got I think it's got enough of the the sensibility here. And is there anything else that you want to bring up for this one, or um, just uh, I also adored the uh, the cameo towards the end by uh, Eleanor Braun on Cleese. Yes, um, as the uh, in the art gallery. Yeah, yeah, that was that was a very random one, but I guess obviously Cleese he was probably he was still probably under contract for um, with the BBC. I mean, obviously he knew. Yeah. New Adams. He knew uh, Adams, yeah. Connection with Monty Python and the Cambridge Footlights there, so... Right. So it's probably, oh, <laughs> you want to come and do some, <laughs> do yeah. some stuff on Doctor Who? You would expect more from, obviously, someone who Cleese is standing to, than just a little cameo, but, you know, whenever John Cleese is about it, it's always welcome. Yeah. It's so refreshing to see him playing someone other than Lucy Liu's dad. Yes. <laughs> it seems to be his, his ongoing theme. At least two series now he's played her father, so... That's a, yeah. I think that's really all about I got about everything I got. Okay. Um, well, in that case, we're going to take a quick break uh, to hear from one of our other shows as part of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Uh, when we return, though, we will be looking at episode zero um, of Japanese Spider-Man, also known as Spider-Man. All right, guys. So we need to record our top three reasons why you should listen to French Toast Sunday podcast. Number three should definitely be our diverse opinions. Number two should probably be our top three lists that we do every week. No, it's got to it's be Mark Wahlberg. What about Gwyneth Paltrow's head? It's got to be fighting the sadness in the swamp of sadness. Full frontal. Stories about being lost at sea. Brendan Fraser being underground. Helen Mirren's boobs. Baltimore accents as heard in The Wire. Underclothes. Crepes. Character studies. Wait, 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 guys. What about movies? No. Tree rape. Hmm. Tree Yeah, I like Tree Tune in every Friday for a new episode of French Toast Sunday Podcast, brought to you by us at FrenchToastSunday.com. Clothing made out of Burger King wrappers. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to a TV Good Sleep Bad. Um, still joining me, as always, is my co-host, Mr. Daniel Lackey. Hello. Um, I was in the first half, it was... We uh, looked at uh, Doctor Who's City of Death. Um, now we're obviously looking on to our second selection of this evening, uh, which is the episode zero of Japanese Spider-Man, also known as Sudraman, uh, which, despite being called episode zero, does actually fall between episodes 10 and 11 and originally started as a feature. The series itself was uh, produced by Toei Company and was part of a deal that Marvel did with uh, the company so that they could give, do Japanese versions of classic Marvel characters. Uh, there was also a plan to do a Japanese version of uh, Captain America, which kind of fell through. Uh, in the end, they did actually create use the use the bits and pieces to um, create another another series, um, which was Battle Fever J, uh, which was released in 1979 and was kind of like a loose adaptation, but. If you're thinking Spider-Man, I know what Spider-Man is. Why are they going to explain to me what Spider-Man is? The Japanese version is, should we say, just a little different than the traditional one, as this isn't about Peter Parker. Uh, There is no Daily Bugle, and he's not certainly working as a freelance news reporter. Instead, we have the Spider-Man here. is played by a character known as uh, Takuyu Yashimuro, who is a motocross racer who actually gets his spider powers not from a radioactive spider bite but from aliens 
and he's not fighting against the likes of Doctor Doom and Doctor Octopus in those classic villains. Instead, he's taking on a army of bad guys known as the Iron Cross Army, led by the Japanese ripoff of Doctor Doom known as Professor Monster. In the episode we're looking at tonight, uh, episode zero, Spider-Man is basically convinced by an Interpol agent to work with him so they can take down the Iron Cross army. Um, in doing so, he finds himself also facing off against a torpedo-launching monster called Sea Devil and a bunch of, basically, foot troopers of the Iron Cross who are essentially just an older version of uh, the Puddies from uh, Power Rangers. But, Lucky, I think this was your first experience with uh, Japanese Spider-Man. What was your opening thoughts? I uh, what is it that I just watched? I think I, I think I think my response was the same as uh, uh, Krusty, uh, the clown in the classic <laughs> Simpsons episode. Uh, Krusty gets canceled after he watches the uh, Worker in Parasite cartoon. What the hell was that? <laughs> it's brilliant. I, uh, I I I knew that it was going to be. I, I I had known that there was an alternate Japanese version of Spider-Man. I did not expect him to have his own Voltron. Yes. Uh, uh, I did not expect... Um, I did not expect the uh, the bad guy's henchman uh, to be a, a woman in a Darth Vader swimsuit. Uh, and I certainly had no way of predicting that their minions would be dressed up in Devo costumes or that a gigantic anthropomorphic shark um, would, 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 would grow to gigantic proportions and... Um, lay waste to the neighborhood. This, this is just absolutely insane. I don't know what to make of it. It's just... I, I definitely got the feeling uh, with it uh, that it that definitely... Uh, you said this comes a little bit late. Actually, even though it's in episode zero, it comes a little bit later in the run. I had expected it to kind of establish certain things, so it, it didn't establish a lot of what I expected it to establish. So a lot of actually the the, the origins of the character I'm just learning just now as you say it. <laughs> yeah, because um, uh... it doesn't it doesn't talk about the planet Spider. It doesn't. I mean, it's you know basically cutting back and forth between um, uh, between Takuya. Um, in and out of the Spider-Man costume, and, and then he's approached by this man who says he's from the Interpol Special Intelligence Section or whatever, and we've got to go fight the Iron Cross Army. And there's nothing that gives us any real indication of what the Iron Cross Army is or why it's important. So I'm just kind of sitting here lost, kind of just wondering what, what everybody's just running around making such a big thing over. Okay. Um, I I did kind of get a little bit weary towards the end with the the action sequences, but I if I, I definitely see where how the the audience at the time that there's almost there's something I think almost kind of like quintessentially Japanese about this, like I just imagine that in the 1970s everything that ran like in the afternoons that was geared at kids looked exactly like this. It's probably completely unfair, but. It, it, it just it's it's got giant robots and silly costumes and you know it it's really in many ways really manic. Um, it's it, it's definitely interesting, but I I think I don't really know what to make of it. Yeah, I mean, obviously this falls under the uh, tokusatsu sort of genre of of programming, uh, which is essentially just special effects heavy 
uh, shows, which have got like a science fiction or fantasy edge to them. So things like Godzilla or Gamera would fall under this, the same way that Ultraman or the Super Sentai, things like Power Rangers, again, or like you've got mecha dramas like Giant Robo, they would right. all fall under this category. So essentially, if you think Power Rangers, that's what we're aiming for. That would be the layman sort of way of, uh, of saying, what, saying what this show essentially is. Um, certainly in the terms of Power Rangers, I mean, they, they buy that show from Japan and then they edit in a bunch of footage of of um, American teens. And basically any time that you see Power Rangers in the Power Rangers outfit or fighting giant monsters in mean, areas which look surprisingly like uh, downtown Tokyo, um, that is footage from the original show. Right. Obviously, with this uh, show, it takes elements of the original Spider-Man, so he can walk on walls and he can shoot webs. And as you said, he has a giant robot, uh, which is called... It starts off as a spaceship called Marveler, and then it changes into the giant mecha called uh, Lepowardian, which essentially is the same as any other mecha zord from Power Rangers or whatnot. And as the end, the uh, Monster of the Week, Sea Devil in this case... For no reason, no reason, even for somebody who's supposed to know what's happening in the show, enlarges himself and that's just basically so we can have the uh, giant mecha fight at the end. But yeah, we've obviously, as you said, we've got the Darth Vader wearing woman. Uh, she's known as uh, uh, Amazonius. And uh-huh. we've got Professor Monster, who is actually the leader of the Iron Cross Army, as I said before. And he was responsible for the destruction of power- Planet Spider. And he uses the blood of other life forms to serve as his source of immortality. Of course, none of this is in the episode. Right. So this is probably me just filling you on the blanks. But I really love the energy of this episode. It's, it's, it's so daft. And the it, fact that it's just constantly fighting and just stunwork. work. It, it, it really is very... It's, it's, it's almost manic. You know, it's there's always something going on. It it never seems to just, and and that's I think why it kind of got kind of got to me after a while. It's it just yeah. so manic. It started to wear me out. And just once you'd have, you know, once you'd have an action sequence end, it would lead. It would maybe be about five seconds until we lead into another one. You know, it's like, okay, then, you know, Spider-Man defeats this, and then he's got to defeat the giant sea devil, and then he defeats the giant sea devil, and then there's all the helicopters. Yeah. You know, or maybe the helicopters came first or whatever. Um, <laughs> the main thing, I don't know if I could sit and watch more than two or three of these at a time. Um, the thing I, I that I, and I mentioned this when I when we, when we did Ultra Q, the, the, the big... Um, the big thing for me to this is not even really so much the energy or the story or, or whatever. It's the design. I, I, I love a lot of the design. The, I, I, I mean, it was like sea devil, sea devil has like two or three costumes. He wears throughout the episode. He's got like these military, he's, he's an anthropomorphic shark in a military uniform. Okay. <laughs> sea devil is Jabberjaw. General Jabberjaw. That's what he's like. He wears his, he wears like two or three different military uniforms over the course of the episode, and it, it, it's just so. What is this, you know? But it, it, it is just so endearingly bonkers that you you really can't but just you know help but kind of be charmed by it. I think the when I'm saying watching this episode and the fact that he's like, 
oh, the scientist is on a boat. And then it cuts to Spider-Man in a speedboat. And I was like, this is like the old uh, Adam West Batman. Yeah. The only thing that's missing is the fact that he's like, oh, I'm in my spider boat or something like that. Which... I, I, I kept thinking, I, I kept thinking to myself, actually, you bring up something good. I should have written this down. But I was thinking to myself, it's like the Japanese seem to have confused him with the Adam West Batman. <laughs> Because he's got, he's, you know, he's got all these gadgets, you know, he's got, he's got a spider boat and he's got a spider bot. (laughs) You know, it's, it's it's just, it it has these wonderful daft sequences in it. There's this great scene where he's on the, 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 the ship, the, the big, um, Iron Cross army ship. And he's obviously climbing down like a conning tower or something like that. And you have like 20 freaking foot soldiers all in these identical uniforms and they're looking for him. And they don't see that he's obviously behind them. They're they're like going and they're looking in barrels for him or under rugs or behind (laughs) a flagpole. And they don't see that he's behind him crawling down. Um, of the effects work in this, I think was was I mean for this kind of thing. Again, this is kind of like a this is kind of I think why it kind of matches Doctor Who in in that way. Is again, we're not talking necessarily really convincing or realistic effects here, but you you, you watch something like this, you watch a kaiju movie, you watch a, a Sentai thing, you watch something like Ultra Q, this Ultraman. Uh, Power Rangers, you know to expect a certain level of production value. You know what you're... And I think this does it really well. There was one, and I think it had to have been a model shot. It had to have been like a doll in a model shot, but where he's climbing up the side of a skyscraper. And I thought, that almost really does look like an actor climbing up the side of a skyscraper. There's so many elements to this, this, uh, this episode in particular where... I was sure that that they've got some very crazy uh, stuntmen going. The one shot in particular where he's hanging on the skid of the helicopter, and the way they're shooting it, there seems to be no harness or anything attaching him in any yeah. way. And the way that it's shot, there's no way that they could hide a rope or a harness for him to attach to. So he's essentially hanging off this helicopter, and he's letting go. He's like hanging off with like one hand and stuff, and I'm thinking... God, it's just like Jackie Chan, like under the mask or what? It's like whoever's in the Spider-Man suit is absolutely bonkers and certainly earning their paycheck. Because prior to this, we have them running across a a dirt, a piece of dirt land, and essentially he's running into explosion, explosive charges. Uh huh. Um, as his helicopter is supposed to be shooting him, and you can see there's moments where he's hitting the charge as it goes off. Right. So he's essentially blowing himself up at least three or four times in this one sequence. Right. Um, which is a real credit to uh, whoever's played this role, but it makes me wonder if they got good insurance over there, but especially when they're going for these sort of things. But again, I love the, the spread effects. He crawls on walls. Yeah. And for some reason, the, the little foot, foot troopers, the ninders, um, so there's a scene where he's like crawling on the wall and he's spinning around. He does a 360 on the wall. And none of them think, oh, why don't we attack him while he's doing this? They actually stand there and seem to watch him do his little uh, entrance there. Oh, oh, oh look, attack he's, look, he's doing an acrobatic routine. <laughs> Better not interfere, it would be rude. Well, that would be rude. I mean, he's putting on a performance for us. <laughs> no, no one thinks, like, just get a giant rolled-up newspaper and hit him at all. Yeah, right? exactly. It's like, well, don't we have guns? Can't we shoot him while he does this? You know. 
But yeah, it, it's it's yeah, I, I can't imagine that you actually watch this for the story. You watch it for the energy, and I couldn't even figure out if there was really much of a story here. It was just basically, you know, the the, the Interpol guy just points uh, Takuya at the Iron Cross Army and says, "You have to defeat the Iron Cross Army." And then by the end, he's defeated the Iron Cross Army. It's like, now I've made an enemy for life. And it's like, wow. That's, uh, <laughs> wow, that's like a conviction. That's how you make an arch enemy is you just, yeah. wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the other thing that should be noted with the obviously the Toei version we're watching this evening is that this version of Spider-Man, unlike his American counterpart, the Marvel Comics counterpart. He doesn't use his web shooter to swing between buildings. Um, instead, he uses the spider car, also known as Spider Machine GP7, uh, which is like a flying car that goes into into Marvler, um, which again can turn into a giant robot. So it's nice that one thing goes into another and that goes into another thing. So again, it's that classic uh, kaiju thing of giant mecha and things transforming, which is obviously so familiar with obviously this genre, the uh, Takasatsu. Uh, genre of 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 uh, filming, I guess. Uh-huh. But the other thing which really stood out, and this is a lot to do with the copy we, we had for reviewing this, because Marvel for a period did have the full series over on their site, and when I went to access it, could not find it. Um, we couldn't find like a, a bootleg on YouTube or anything like that, and the box set seems to be out. So we had... I think it was a Russian dub. It looked like a Russian dub. It looked the um, the, the 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 title of the video was in Cyrillic. Um, so obviously we have the the subtitles in English. We have the original Japanese dialogue, and over that we have one guy sounding very bored, dubbing the episode, and it's kind of like someone giving a director's commentary when they just can't be bothered. It, 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 I, it, it, I actually initially thought that it was a commentary track that they'd actually put in a commentary track, and it was just. But then I, I realized, wait, this person's only talking when other people are talking or when the singing's going on. Like there's, there's like actually like some action sequences at the beginning, like a minute of like silence, and it's like the guy's not talking to the guy. Oh, I guess it must be dubbing of some kind, but it's really bad. I mean, the guy literally like sounds like he's reading them off a cue card. Like, like he's half-assed. He's like, it's like, oh yeah, I'm reading a newspaper here, and it's like, oh look, you got to read this stuff off the cue cards as well. Yeah, the highlight is when he tries to sing along to the song. He he tries to sing along. There's there's a, a song song here in the background, and he appears to be trying to sing along to the song, but I, he, I he sings it in the same monotone voice. Yeah, he just seemed to be reading the lyrics. <laughs> you know, it was just yeah, it was um kind of surreal actually. Um, I didn't know what to make of that at all. It's uh, it, it's interesting. I'll give it that. Okay. So obviously the, we've we've done two two programs within this this genre. We obviously did Ultra Q back in our first ever episode, and we've obviously done this one now. I mean, now you've had at least two examples. I mean, did you have a preference over which two or? Has it inspired you to want to watch more? I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I... Like I said, there's just certain things about this is that I don't know if I could ever actually sit down and watch like more than, like say, two or three episodes of a series like this in a row. It, it, it's just... It's almost... And it, I had kind of... Well, the, the Ultra Q episode was a little bit slower paced. Yes. It's just that with this one, it was a little bit slower paced and there seemed to actually have been a story there. Like I said, it just... 
it, it was just action sequence for this one. Action sequence, action sequence, action sequence. Um, I, I think I probably preferred the Ultra Q a bit more. I think I liked the Ultra Q a little bit more because I think it was a little bit more deliberate and I could actually stop and like pay attention to it. Like, like I, I'm not kidding you when I say that this was almost tiring to watch because it is so frenetic. It is just so one thing happens after another. Yeah. And it doesn't ever, it doesn't ever really let up. But like I said, I can imagine that the, the target audience for this back when it was made just ate, you know, just, it, it's like, it's like eating a bowl of sugar cereal. You know, it's like eating a bowl of, uh, you know, whatever you have in Britain that's equivalent to Cocoa Puffs or Lucky Charms or whatever. Yeah, you, I know what you mean. Over there. You know, you know what the kind of thing I mean. You know, it's just or just like, you know, eating four candy bars in a row or having a triple espresso. It's just um, I think I would prefer the Ultra Q, I think. You'd prefer a little more laid back. And, and a that. little bit more laid back. Yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, it's yeah, it's I think this is one of those those things that you dig out to sort of show people and just like blow their minds yeah. with just how random it is because obviously it's got that familiarity being Spider-Man and in the back of your mind you sort of know what you expect from Spider-Man but what we get here instead is something very different because uh, obviously we have the giant robots we have Spider-Man having his flying car and a spaceship and all these other elements that have been added because of the popularity at the time right. um, and again this is the uh, producers of this, uh, Toru Hiroa and Suzuma Yoshiki Iwa. Um, I apologize again for butchering uh, any of the Japanese names in this uh, episode. Uh, they wanted to make a series like, like faithful to the, the web sling origins, but Bandai, who were one of the sponsors, uh, basically told them to add giant robots because they were popular at the time. Um, and I think they worked it in well. I mean, the rewrites they did to the origin story to make it all come together, I think, work really well. And I certainly have no problem with, with Spider-Man having a giant robot. Um, certainly with the Mattel Shogun Warriors toy line, uh, they did actually include um, the giant robot uh, Leopardon um, and Bandai's American Godin toy line. Um, also did uh, the figure as well, which um, came complete with transforming figures. Yeah. But unfortunately, only a few people in America actually knew what the link was. Yeah. Uh, but but it, it, it's definitely... Again, it's 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 the kind of... I, I had thought in there, certainly... My, my first, I think, when I finally... Like about halfway through the episode, I think it just kind of dawned on me. It was almost like they had taken... Pretty much that they had just taken one of their other shows with a, you know, one of their other giant robot shows like uh, Voltron or whatever, and just took out and then put Spider-Man in it. Yeah. You know, but it, it's just, it is kind of, it, it is an interesting kind of object lesson. Or it, maybe I shouldn't say object lesson, but it's kind of an interesting sort of thing where you, you, you basically give an idea, you, you take like a core idea and, and almost, almost like a remix. I mean, it, like I said, it's, it's, I didn't just see Spider-Man here. You know, I it, this was almost like a remix of the in, of, of of what I think the what the Japanese culture I think would have looked would have thought would have thought like the entire idea of the American superhero was that they would they, they would borrow these bits from Captain you know America or or the Adam West Batman or whatever. Yeah. You know. And I think just the fact that obviously with like the Adam West Batman, I mean, if you watch Adam. 
those original shows now, they come off extremely camp, but they've got a uh-huh. certain charm to them. They do. Um, and I think that they, they're very reminiscent of their, their time and, and, and place. And I think this, again, is of its, of its time, but at the same time, it's not so nostalgic that you can't enjoy it. Uh, as just a piece of disposable fun, I wouldn't say this is high entertainment or anything like that, but certainly for, for half an hour, it's, it's manic fun. Yeah. Like, especially it, for myself as well. So You know, if this is the sort of thing, I mean, I think this definitely, I think, appeals to like a, a certain sensibility. You know, I mean, there are just, I think, people that really just kind of always did kind of just go gaga over this kind of thing, particularly if, you know, you grew up with things. Like, I didn't grow up. I'm, I think Power Rangers, I think I was like 18 or 19 when Power Rangers debuted. Um, so I, I mean, I, my, my uh, ex- younger, ex- younger days exposure to um, Japanese culture came through, tended to come through like some of the early anime, like uh, Speed Racer or... Yep. Um, uh, the, the the Macross, the various Macross, Southern Cross series that were eventually reconfigured into Robotech. Yeah, Robotech. Yeah. You know, and stuff like that. And certainly I was aware of things like Voltron. But Voltron, I remember, had this sort of... Uh, Voltron had this almost sort of weird fan base where it was actually... Uh, the things that... Voltron. When I heard of Voltron or series with like Japanese series with giant robots, they they would there were segments that would run as part of like um like shows like um, Night Flight, which was a cable show that had like bizarre music videos and uh, clips of uh, shows from other countries, and that is something that would have like run at night and would have had an adult audience. I don't remember yep. things like Voltron running and being particularly pitched at anybody like my age um so it's i i didn't like i said i think this could be something that you know you it can kind of help to be uh exposed to this kind of sensibility at an earlier age um and you like i said you yourself talking about you know you were you were younger when you came across power rangers you, i mean I, obviously like, i came up when when i was coming up i mean power rangers was 93 yeah um so i i grew up i watched power rangers before then i was i was watching like godzilla movies and that was my reference point and obviously you sit so watch power rangers like oh wow this is really similar and i thought this is so strange the fact that we have all these sets that look like uh tokyo harbor and stuff being destroyed when we're supposed to be in angel grove i don't know new york should we say right right um so there was that familiarity and it was only years later that i found out the fact that they were taking this uh the footage from the original um the original series there and then editing their their own footage there to create this new show because obviously in, in japan it's uh they use the footage from super sentai series right um and they obviously they uh they re-edited it so that we have the power Rangers, and obviously that became such a a huge show i think i followed that show really from 93 through to i'd say around 96 right so Though obviously it's gone on for that for there now. I mean, we're obviously what we've got twenty three seasons, nineteen different themes, two yeah. films, and a third film coming out. Um, so, and I mean, it's uh, it's something I kind of grew out, but obviously it's just moved on for each new generation of uh, kids. And yeah. I'd like to think that it provides that entry point to 
this world. Yeah. And these sorts of things that obviously these kids, they grow up and they think, oh, this is really cool. What else is there? And I can watch things like Ultraman. I can watch things like Godzilla. I can watch Gamera. Right. Um, there's all these, these movies and TV series that kids now have such easier access to, um, especially being a kid in the UK. Uh-huh. We have very limited access. So it, the stuff you would get would be even through tape trading. Uh, right. That's a real nostalgic throwback. To, oh, yeah. Especially because, you know, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have, like, you could just, like, type up and look for some pirate bay or whatever to find these things. You had to yeah, you actually find had some to, guy who yeah. had the tape you wanted. Um, we would, people would form clubs. I remember we had a club at our, our school. We had this, like, loose network of, of clubs, high school uh, Japanimation clubs. Um, and, 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 you know, the region, the, the high schools around our area where, you know, the, the, the local geeks and your, your, the local, you know, you know, we call anime fans, the, the local otaku, they would get together and they would swap their, uh, you know, they'd swap their tapes of Ranma or whatever, or they would talk and they would, you know, the, you know, the, um, the knowledge of these things would, would travel by word of mouth. You know, it's not like, you know, you can go onto the internet, you know, it's, 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 it's one of the ways in which the internet has changed things where, you know, some, you go on Facebook and somebody's talking about such and such a show and you can go get it on, um, you know, easy TV or pirate pay the next day. Oh, and question of things. I mean, even just on the legal, legal side of things, you can look at things such as Crunchyroll and even like Netflix and Amazon prime are all starting to pick up our Amazon series and it's sort of grown from its sleazy sort of roots. Right. Uh, where you had things such as films thrown is normally like in, in Japanese uh, sex clubs and stuff. So pictures as Legend of the Overfiend, which we brought over here. Right. Without any sort of context. So we just thought they were really screwed up over in Japan. Yeah. And everyone was generally a pervert uh, because these were like anime filled with schoolgirls and demons and questionable behavior, should we say. Um, and obviously now there's a much more diverse style of anime we've got a lot more different sorts of shows and and that coming over is the popularity has obviously increased i mean long gone are the days of fan subbing and right these sort of grassroots ways of uh getting the material over here so i think it would be nice to obviously see uh japanese spider-man ha- have its box set released or for marvel to again stream these episodes because it'd be great for them to get out there they're very light-hearted very fun and uh again that another great entry point for People looking to expand their their taste out of uh, what's currently out there. So. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Um, but any final thoughts on this one before we uh, wrap it I, up? I think I'm done with this one. Cool. Um, right, next episode. What have we uh, got coming up? Uh, we have episode eight, in which I we are finally going to take on the cult show of all cult shows, Mystery Science Theater three thousand. Cool. Um, that is. Uh, one I've wanted to do for a while, and uh, I think it's about time. And the particular episode I picked, I could have picked one of the really obvious ones, but I decided to go with uh, Teenagers from Outer Space. Nice. Um, as for myself, we're still going to stay on the similar track of uh, this evening, but as we're going to be actually looking at another to- uh, Tokusutu, um series. We're going to be looking at Ultraman. Uh, in particular, we're going to be looking at episode 10, of the original series, The Mysterious Dinosaur Base, uh, which is memorable mainly for reusing uh, the Godzilla suit from Godzilla vs. Sea Monster or Ever a Horror of the Deep, which uh, you may remember back in episode one, we actually uh, discussed as being reused for the opening episode of Ultra Q as well. So, yep. needless to say, they uh, 
Gods of the Suits over at uh, Toei was certainly uh, getting in their use. But um, yes, it's going to be exciting to not only look at some MST3K, but uh, also getting to chance to look at some Ultraman as well. Um, in the meantime, if you do want to obviously uh, let us know some feedback, let us know what you think of the show, you can uh, leave us a rating on iTunes, you can let us know on Podomatic, you can also uh, hit us up on the social media. We are on Twitter, which is at TV Good Sleep Bad. Uh, we are also on Facebook. Um, again, if you type in search bar TV Good Sleep Bad, um, it will come up straight there. You know, leave us some feedback. Let us know the shows you would like to see covered on the uh, on the show, and uh, maybe we can see if we can get them covered for you. Um, Miss Lackey, is there anything uh, you want to plug over see before we go? Uh, just my website. You can always find me at thenightmaregallery.com. Um, and as for myself, I'm obviously still at From the Depths of DVD Hell, which is from the depths of DVD hell.blogspot.co.uk, as well as over at our partner site, channelsuperhero.com, uh, where I'm still continuing the Buffy recap. We are currently on season three. Uh, so lots of exciting things and great key characters being introduced, such as Anya and, more importantly, the bad girl Slayer Faith. Uh, so expect much fan worship, shall we say, of Elijah Dushku uh, for this particular season recap. But it's uh, certainly proven a fun one. And obviously over at Channel Super you've got all your, not only your weekly shows being covered, such as Arrow, Flash, uh Marvel Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., iZombie. We've also got some classic Batman being covered over there as well. There's uh, many other great shows uh, as well, so make sure you check them out at channelsuperhero.com. Um, but until uh, next time, um, I'd like to thank you all for listening. Um, and thank you again, uh, Mr. Lackey, for joining me. Thank you. Um, until next time, though, this is Edward Jones uh, signing off. And remind you, as always, keep it strange. <laughs>